Welcome to the City Church Podcast, your home for all of the audio and sermons from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet every week at 10 a.m. at the Sundial AMC Movie Theater, 151 2nd Avenue North in beautiful downtown St. Petersburg, Florida. Nothing's more satisfying as we wrap up our series on Proverbs. For me, then cracking open my commentary early this week and reading these words. Proverbs 30 is probably the most difficult passage in the Old Testament to understand. And given that I had a shorter week because we took our son out of town for a few days for his birthday, that was really exciting. Oh, really? Cool, 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 cool. So as I begin to get in and look at Proverbs 30, The difficulty from the passage comes from one question. If you were to look in your Bibles and the heading of the chapter, it says that these are the words of Augur, or at least that's how I'm going to pronounce his name today because it seems easiest for me. The question, though, is how much of this is Augur's words? Does Solomon step in here and respond to Augur at any point? It's a difficult question because there's no marker there that says so. There's no place where Solomon says, and here's my reply to what has come before. It just sort of keeps going. I wish there was. It'd be a lot cooler if it did, but it doesn't. And the six different commentaries I read, they had six different opinions, which was very helpful and neat. At the same time, I have a friend who went to a small directional Votech school in Alabama called Auburn. And I actually have a number of friends who went to Auburn, and apparently the great computer uh, overlords at Google or wherever else uh, think that because I have so many friends that went to Auburn, I must care about Auburn. So I'm oftentimes served information and things about Auburn, which I don't care about. I might check the scores every now and then, so one friend in particular I know And when I see him on Sunday morning, what kind of mood he's going to be in. But other than that, I don't meaningfully care or follow Auburn University at all. And yet, somehow, up on my computer screen this week was an Auburn University sports parody account. I don't know. But there it was. Right in the middle of my screen. But what was even more shocking than that I was being served things for Auburn when the college I went to doesn't even exist anymore, much less Auburn, is the tweet from this, excuse me, parody sports account. The tweet went something like this. Isn't it crazy how we can live in a world, (coughs) excuse me, Isn't it crazy how we can live in a world where, depending on the content of your media diet, you can believe two opposite things about what happened in any given situation? Truth has become a commodity that is packaged and sold. (coughs) I have not coughed all morning. (coughs) Excuse me, I'm sorry. has become a commodity that is packaged 
and sold. Don't we see that all around us? I mean, this week, the Kyle Rittenhouse jury delivered their result. And people were either very excited or very upset. And if you draw a line, the media diet that those people consumed was probably driving whether or not they were excited or lamenting. Where you fell on your spectrum. All right, so let's talk about a Canadian philosopher named Charles Taylor. He described this present moment that we're going through in a situation like this as a moment where we are living in a world where truth is contested. Everything that you and I know and believe is up for grabs. There's almost nothing you can say that you could get universal agreement on in any situation. Our worldviews, our foundational truths for all of us are scattered to the wind. We confess that a Jewish carpenter rose from the dead. The gal at the coffee shop believes that you can charge up quartz crystals with moonlight. The fellow at the gas station thinks this is all a simulation. My 13-year-old believes that birds aren't real, that they're drones. That's why they land on power lines, to charge. So how do we navigate this world? I mean, yes, I think it's crazy that people believe that you can charge quartz crystals in moonlight. But I also believe that dead people come back to life. Where do we go from here? What do we do in a world of contested truth? I think that's what Proverbs 30 is all about. I think that's what we're going to see this morning. Because Proverbs 30 is a dialogue. It's a back and forth between Solomon and Augur. And so Solomon is going to show us how to navigate this. So if you would, please stand as I read Proverbs 30. The words of Augur, son of Jekeh, the oracle. The man declares, I am weary, O God. I am weary, O God, and worn out. Surely I am too stupid to be a man. I have not the understanding of a man. I have not learned wisdom, nor have I knowledge of the Holy One. Who has ascended to the heaven and come down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has wrapped up the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? What is his son's name? Surely you know. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. But do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Two things I ask of you. Deny them not to me before I die. Remove from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful to me, lest I be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? Or lest they be poor and steal and profane the name of God. Do not slander a servant to his master, lest he curse you and you be held guilty. 
There are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. There are those, how lofty in their eyes, how high their eyelids lift. There are those with teeth are, whose teeth are swords, whose fangs are knives. To devour, to devour the poor from the earth and the needy from among mankind. The leech has two daughters, give and give. <coughs> Three things are never satisfied. Four never say enough. Sheol, the barren womb, the land never satisfied with water, <clears throat> and the fire that never says enough. The eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey the mother will be plucked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. Three things are too wonderful to me. Four, I do not understand. The way of an eagle in the sky, the way of a serpent on a rock, the way of a ship on the high seas, and the way of a man with a virgin. This is the way of an adulteress. She eats and wipes her mouth and says, I have done no wrong. Under three things, the earth trembles. <clears throat> Under four, it cannot bear up. When a slave becomes king and a fool when he is filled with food, <clears throat> an unloved woman when she gets a husband and a maidservant when she displaces her mistress. Four things on earth are small, but they are exceedingly wise. The ants are a people not strong, yet they provide their food in the summer. Rock badgers are a people not mighty, yet they make their homes in the cliffs. Locusts have no king, yet all of them march in rank. The lizard you can take in your hands, yet it is in king's palaces. Three things are stately in their tread. Four are stately in their stride. The lion, which is the mightiest among the beast, and does not turn back before any. The strutting rooster, the he-goat, and a king whose army is with him. If you have been foolish, exalting yourself, or if you've been devising evil, put your hand to your mouth. For pressing milk produces curds, and the pressing of the nose produces blood, and the pressing of anger produces strife. City Church, this is the word of God written nearly 3,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So as we read through this passage, the question is, where do we divide out when Solomon is speaking and when Augur is speaking? And I think the most sense that we can make of it, as I have studied this passage, is that Augur's words are the first four verses. They have a different tone than the rest of the chapter, and there's a clear break on what is going on there. The tone of the first four verses is one of skepticism and sort of lament. As we read through it, what we see is that he is asking these questions. And he's stating things about himself. I'm too stupid to be a man. I'm too dumb. And not only that, who has ascended to heaven and come back down? Who has gathered the wind in his fists? Who has done all of these things? Augur is making an argument here. And Solomon is going to reply with the rest of the chapter. Part of the complication of this is we have no idea who Augur was. This is the only time in the entire Bible Augur is mentioned. And his dad, Jekhe, I think that's how you pronounce that. He's not mentioned in the Bible either. And let's make things, just let's just throw all the complications in here. When it says that this is an oracle, that could also be the name of a tribe, a Bedouin tribe that lived in Arabia around this time. So is this an oracle or is he from the tribe of that name? We don't know. We're not sure. But the tone of verses one through four is the tone of somebody 
who is skeptical and mocking Solomon. He's mocking Solomon and everybody who seeks wisdom the way that Solomon has been encouraging us to seek wisdom through all of this. He's saying, Solomon, your project that you set out to do is to make others wise. But here I am. I'm not wise. And what do you know? What do you know anyway, Solomon? Solomon, please teach me because I'm obviously too dumb to figure this out on my own. In many ways, the argument that Augur is making is this. If you can't know everything, how can you know anything? If you can't know everything, how can you know anything? That's his charge. That's how he ends his sort of sarcastic reply. If you don't know who has gathered the wind in his fist and you can't tell me his name, then why can you tell me about wisdom, Solomon? Feels like an awful modern argument, doesn't it? Sounds like a discussion you might have with your friend or maybe over turkey at Thanksgiving. And not only do we encounter this sort of skepticism outside of the Christian faith, we can at times encounter it inside the Christian faith. There are some who think they have got it all figured out, that they are Everyone who just doesn't see the Bible the way that they see the Bible is just dumb. And there are those who have overcorrected in the other direction, putting any tenet of our faith up for grabs. Whether we are talking to a skeptic or a fellow believer, the way that Solomon responds to this is helpful and instructive. Look at verses five and six. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. But do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Solomon, in the face of Augur's arguments, that's tough to say. In the face of Augur's arguments, Solomon doesn't defend himself. Solomon doesn't prove his case. Solomon doesn't show and strut on how wise he is. Rather, he goes back to the words of God. They're true and a shield to those who take refuge in them. He reminds us that the word of God is a safe place in times of trouble. But he's not arrogant in the way that he does this. He doesn't call Arger a fool. He doesn't roll his eyes. This is the language that the word of God is a shield and a hiding place. It's not a cudgel to hit people with. It's a comfort and a help. And so Solomon shows us how to treat others with respect, but without giving into the spirit of the age that says, since all truth is not known, all truth is contested, no truth matters. Nope. For Solomon, he says, no, 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 we have a source. We have a basis. We have a place where we can find truth, and that is the word of God. Now, some of us want to say, because we can know some truth, that we know all truth. No, no, that's not it either. Solomon warns us about putting words into God's mouth. We can't add to God's word. When we add to God's word, we're calling God a liar. At least that's what Solomon says. How often in our quest to be right, even as Christians, in our quest to be right, do we go farther than what the Bible says? Do we make clear the things that the Bible doesn't always make clear? Here's what I mean. This is the words of our confession. This is um, from the Westminster Confession. It says this, all things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. 
look, we know this to be true. Not everything in the Bible is as equally clear as other things. If there were, we wouldn't have things like Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Episcopalians and Anglicans, right? If it was clear, we could go, huh? Yeah, done, right? There would not be these arguments. But not all things are as clear as others. But here's how the confession goes on. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or other that not only the learned but the unlearned in due use of the ordinary means may attain to sufficient understanding of them. Okay, that's a lot of words, big ones in a row. Here's what it's teaching us. There are some things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. There are some things in the Bible that we have understandable disagreements about. However, those things which are necessary for us to believe for salvation are clear to the learned or the unlearned. Those things that matter most, the gospel itself is clear. But there are other things that are not. And in our desire to be right, we have to be careful that we're not adding to God's word. We have to be careful that we're not going farther than God goes. As much as we'd like to, the Bible just isn't as always as clear on everything as we want. And Solomon warns us about that. He reminds us to hide in the word of God, but he warns us not to add to it. And then Solomon goes through and summarizes the entire book of Proverbs with the rest of his words. And I want to point out just a few things. I'm kind of like a a tour guide on a Disney tour bus. If you look on your right, you'll see the animal kingdom. It's a kingdom full of animals. If you'll see on the left, there's Epcot. It's got a golf ball. That's what I want to do is just point out a few of these things. Immediately after Solomon shows Augur that the word of God is our basis for everything, he begins to, to point us and ask God not to lead us into temptation. He asks God to help him tame his tongue from lying and bearing false witness against others. He knows the ever-present temptation we have to make ourselves look better, especially by making others look worse. But then he pivots to a strange request. There in verse 8, he seems to ask God for a middle-class life. God, make me middle-class. Why does Solomon do this? He says, don't make me rich, and then I'll say, who is the Lord? But don't make me poor, because then I'll have to steal food and break your commandments. What is he saying? He is saying that he is asking God to remove those temptations from his life, to remove the temptation to forget who God is because of his wealth, or to take matters into his own hands to have to make ends meet. He wants neither of those. Wisdom is understanding where our temptations come from. And Solomon is well aware of his when he says that. But then down in verse 11, you see that wisdom is ought, ought to make us humble and not arrogant. He warns us about forgetting where we came from, cursing our parents. We talked about that two weeks ago. And then he points out that there are those who are clean in their own eyes, but in reality are still filthy. The same is absolutely true today. 
many of us struggle to see the sin in our own lives. We're pretty easy and pretty good at finding it in others, but we're not very good at looking in the mirror. Church, beware of those who are critical of everyone but themselves. Church, beware of those that are critical of everyone but their tribe. But you also need to beware not to become the person whose eyes are so lofty. This is a trap we fall into so easily. Our brokenness wires us so that we look down on others. And it's only through the daily practice of repentance and faith that we break free. We have to remember that our sin, not someone else's, our sin, is the biggest roadblock in the way to good relationships with others. I need to remember this. I need to be reminded that my sin is the biggest thing causing problems in my relationships. Because if we don't, it leads us down a path. As he goes through verses 13 and 14, he shows that as we begin to have this sort of pride and hubris, that it leads us to think of ourselves in ways that we are not. And then as we begin to think of ourselves more highly than we ought, we begin to devour others. We begin to devour those who have less than us. Wisdom and the application of scripture should always lead us towards humility and loving others. And it also teaches us to be satisfied. If we are always chasing the next deal, the next big promotion, the next big client, the next home, we aren't living the wisdom that scripture teaches us. We're becoming like a leech who gives birth to more leeches. Did you catch that? That's one of the strangest verses in this passage. The leech has two daughters, give and give. Leeches require the blood of others to survive. Greed doesn't just look like piling up commas in your bank account. Greed can look different than that. Even the poorest among us can be greedy if we're focused on what we don't have and how to get it. That should probably cut us more deeply than we want it to. Let's be honest. We live in a city with lots of jobs that are popping up, lots of new opportunities, lots of new companies are coming here, home prices are soaring. All of it is jumping up. And we can fall into the trap of going right along with our friends, constantly looking to level up. But wisdom points us in a different direction. Wisdom is after a different goal. It isn't like death, the barren womb, or a dry land, or a fire. All of those things say, or never say, enough. There is never enough people for death. When a land is dry and arid, there is never enough rain to make it okay. How many of us live our lives without being able to say enough? without being able to stop and make our happiness subordinate to the good of others. If we have a sense of awe of God, that begins to change. Wonder leads to contentment, but pride leads to misery. And so as Solomon begins to wrap up tour of wisdom, his summing up of this entire book, 
He says there are four things that are bad news. And this, I wanted to point this one out to you because I think this was the strangest one for me to, to wrap my mind around. Look at the section that's 21 to 23. <clears throat> four things make the earth tremble. When a slave becomes king, a fool gets filled with food, an unloved woman finds a husband, and a maidservant usurps her mistress. Okay? Thanks, Solomon. I got it. No, I don't. What does he mean? What is Solomon trying to teach us through these four examples? These are all illustrations that point to people who are grasping for positions and power. The Bible loves the story of a reversal of fortunes. I mean, just think about the Christmas story as we come into Advent. The story of Zechariah and Elizabeth who were barren for years and years and then in their old age had a child. Mary, who was a poor girl from a poor family who all of a sudden was carrying in her the God-man, Jesus. The Bible loves these stories of reversal of fortunes. But what it doesn't love, what it has no place for, is those who take power when it is not given to them by God. In the words of Jesus, it's better to take a lower seat at the table and have the host call you up and say, no, 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 come sit up here. Then to take the good seat and then have the host say, hey, would you, would you scoot down? I, I have somebody that I actually want to sit there. In all of Solomon's tour of wisdom, in all of this, we see one truth woven through and it's where we started at the very beginning. Wisdom is the result of our submission to the word of God and the wisdom that he gives us through his Holy Spirit. It's not a cynical set of principles that protect us from the pain of life. It's a refuge in the word of God because we are filled with awe and wonder at its author. The author who loved us so much that he set aside the riches that he had to give us the life of the ages to come. The author who won't be satisfied until all of his children are reshaped into his image. The author who didn't grasp at power, but laid down his life, that the powers that may be could take it, that he might rise with the power of resurrection life to give it to all who believe. That's the author that he's pointing us to. That's the author and perfecter of our salvation. Church, underneath wisdom, all the way down, you get back to Jesus. And that is who we are called to love and follow, even in a time of contested truth. Let's pray.